Good evening. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. What you are about to hear is my conversation with Aaron Fried, or Freed, the jury's still out on that one. And a uh, quick heads up, I was mobile for this one, and not in the studio, and yours truly bumped the goddamn microphone a few times, so apologies on some of the recording quirks in the following episode. That said, I was very excited to do this talk and do it in person. Aaron is an insightful man and very easy to talk to, which made my job much, much simpler. We covered a wide range of topics that I won't spoil here, so really enough of my rambling. Here is my conversation with Aaron Fried. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Fried, or Freed, or depending on how you want to say depending it. Depending on the day, depending on the person. Um, you are a professor of anatomy and physiology at Mohawk Valley Community College and a visiting professor of neuroanatomy at Utica College. So, one of the first things I want to ask is, using the powers of etymology, I'm assuming neuroanatomy is what, the study of... Study of the brain, the nervous system, all your connections, the control, all that fun stuff. What would ever possess someone to want to go into that? Uh, so let me think back like 25 years as I was graduating from undergrad and making decision about grad school. Uh, I was a biology major and I actually started in the field of anatomy because I wanted to be an athletic trainer and had to take an anatomy and physiology course mm -hmm. and got to work with a human donor for the first time and was it was like that was the moment where i decided this is what i really want to do like this it was the first thing that made sense to me after like trying a bunch of different types of majors um and part of my experience as an undergrad is that um so this was at uh, suny brockport state university of new york brockport okay. and we were lucky enough every year to get one body to have for the whole year which meant that during the summer a couple of students from the regular year would come in and do the dissection so that the students during the regular year would have the body um, to use. And my professor at the time, um, my mentor, was a very hands-on, you're going to learn by doing, he would help um, and give direction, but he basically was me in the room. And one day we said, so now that we're done, we've got all the skin off of this body, we need to get the brain out. So here's a couple of references, here's a couple of dissectors, figure it out. And so in a room in July that had on the other side of the room like a small like window air conditioning unit and it was 97 degrees out and hot and for the first time had to use a bone saw to cut through the skull and opened up the cranial cavity and looked in and saw the brain and realized that there's this little tiny fatty organ that sits behind our eyes that is everything uh, in fact i was just um i was on instagram the other day and it was a picture of a heart and a picture of a brain and the heart is like one pound and the brain is three pounds and it had uh, i love you with all of my heart crossed out and it said i love you with all my brain because the brain is more than the heart yeah. so I, I really became interested in how this little tiny organ is the most complex computer that we know of in the entire universe and wanted to figure out more. So I went to graduate school, studied neuroanatomy, 
uh, at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, um, took um, neuroanatomy with medical students and got into kind of case study analysis in, as a way of understanding and realized that when you're doing, when you're dissecting a muscle, when you're dissecting into the bone connective tissue, you know what to look for because it's there, it's a physical structure. When you're going into the brain-defined structures, there's kind of some definition, but function is really a combination of these clusters of areas that work together. And so it was this real change in, so anatomy of the musculoskeletal system or the rest of the body is here and it's there to find. And the neuro, in neuroanatomy was this study of like, there's these functions that we know of as normal. And when there's abnormal, we kind of have to look at the whole of the nervous system to kind of pinpoint, well, is there some problem up high, down low, in between? Is it all over the place? And I think that really got me interested in the study of what the nervous system, what its capabilities were. And I still don't think after 20 years plus of studying the nervous system that I mean, I know and teach plenty of the principles, but it's, you know, what is a memory? What is a thought? What is, you know, dreaming? I mean, it's all this stuff that I don't know that we have the capabilities to understand now. And it's kind of that constant, like, learning more about the process that, that makes me interested. So, Well, that raised about four questions, so I'm going to go in order. Okay. First of which being, most, like I said, most of the listeners here were general history audience, so we don't really have gauge to understand what that must have felt like the first time you come in contact with a human donor and you teach do you are you there when other students are coming in contact with human donors yeah so i teach at mohawk valley community college Mm -hmm. in utica and we were very lucky about 10 to 15 years ago my mentor there bill parati and sam drogo were able to get the funding to build a small human donor lab. And we have a small walk-in cooler. We get four bodies a year. And what we do is we have, and it's very similar to when I went to Brockport, um, we try to recruit our best students from our AMP one and two from the year mm-hmm. to come in and they do a, it's about a week and a half work dissection where we try to get about four students per body to do the dissection and prepare it. And then during the teaching year, we we use those prosected bodies as a teaching tool. It has to be kind of a surreal moment when you realize that, okay, this is a classroom and I'm working and now this is a human being. This was someone, they had a whole existence prior to being here in front of me as a teaching tool. Now, I feel as though there would have to be some degree of removing the person from the equation or do you try to avoid that because i noticed you use the term human um human human donor donor as opposed to the typical cadaver what why is that so i'm glad you picked up on that i'm glad that earlier you said donor Mm -hmm. this is um there's a it's not just us this is a a broader movement among anatomists is that um and, and this is one of the things we'll talk about in a little bit is there has not always been a history of donation yeah conscious donation by an individual to have their body dissected so that people can learn so we made a decision a few years ago that um first off we had some conversations with people and um cadaver has come to mean a human body Mm -hmm. but in in some of the etymology of the word cadaver it actually 
uh, some of the original translations are uh, from the earth or trash. And so, um, for example, um, in my work with the Nazi anatomists and studying them, uh, met a very wonderful German woman who's an anatomist, Sabine Hildebrandt, and she said that in Germany, for example, they would never use a term like cadaver because to them it means trash, you yeah. know, refuse. And so um, one of the things in med school they try to do is they try to um, sell this concept of the donor as first patient. Okay. Um, which I think even Sabine Hildebrandt doesn't like. She feels that's a little threatening for the students because a patient has consequences. Mm -hmm. So we uh, didn't even know of Sabine Hildebrandt when we had come up with this, but we have what we call a silent teacher philosophy. Mm -hmm. So the the donors in our lab are, uh, they have willed their body to science. We get all of our bodies from Upstate Medical University. So these are people and families who have worked with that university to mm -hmm. donate their body so that we can learn. And we work under this assumption that um, we are going to afford them the dignity and respect that they deserve. And they're one of the, the first or, or silent teachers that are, I mean, we teach a lot of future nurses, um, radiology technicians, respiratory therapists. And so our goal is to kind of not a patient. This is your teacher. This is how you're going to learn to ethically interact with an individual. And we have fun in the lab, but we there's a solemn um, presence. And we go so far as to give the first names of our donors, mm -hmm. the age, the, you know, if you're going to donate your body for dissection, there can't be an autopsy. So we don't know true cause of death, but these are generally individuals who've been in long-term care. So we know yeah. what their condition was. And, um, we choose human donor, and it's funny because it's easier for the students mm -hmm. to pick up on that. And then it, for, for us, it's harder because we've been saying the word cadaver for yeah. years and years and years, and we're constantly slapping ourselves. Um, but it's that transition to, I think, humanize that this is an actual individual. So that's that's why we've made that choice to move away from the use of cadaver and towards human donor. Okay. And this movement to humanize the individual that you're using do you think that would could that possibly complicate the process for some individuals that have a hard time going oh my god this was someone's grandfather or grandmother or a parent or they had a whole life a whole existence ups and downs they went through a, they lost all their money in the stock market or yeah. something like that like they had a life so we're kind of constantly um having discussions about mm -hmm. you know we when we have our our dissection course the students have access to the um, the medical history that comes in, so they get to see, oh, this person was a teacher, stuff like that. But one of the things that's kind of unique is that um, the Upstate Medical University, because of the process and, and how the donation actually works, the body has to be taken in and processed and the fixation has to take place in a certain period of time. So Upstate Medical University has a very limited range where they can bring bodies in from. And so it, it was kind of like a story that we used to tell a long time ago. The first year we, we had um, the lab, the one of the one of the donors was the roommate of one of our professor's father in palliative care. And that had always just been a story that we had thought of in the back of our head. But within the last this is within the last three years. We had a donor who one of our students was a CNA 
who actually took care of that person as a patient before they died in palliative care and were faced with that that individual in the classroom. And then just within the last year, we had someone who um, their do- the donor was um, one of their friend's um, grandparents. And so there's a reality to that, that yeah. there's like this, um, there's after you die, something happens to your body. And that mm-hmm. I really think that's pushing that, that humanity a little bit more. Um, and so it's just kind of, I think it's um, that important confrontation of the reality of, yeah, you know what what end of life might be like for these students. Mm-hmm. So now, I when you were talking, it reminded me of this idea that these some of these people knew the people they were currently working with. There was this um, sculptor. I just saw this documentary. His name is Sukalski. I forget his first name. It's horrible. And um, his father got hit by a car. It was like early 1900s, and he. I don't know how he was able to get access to it, but he dissected his father's body after he died, and that said that's how he learned anatomy for his sculptures. Mm-hmm. The um, I think so. I think Da Vinci is like a classic example. Okay. He did um, tons of dissections to be. I, I think he was curious about the human body, yeah. But he also used those dissections to learn to be a better artist. Okay. Um, and, you know, a lot of those stories would be that he, if, if he was going to do a dissection, it was going to be at night because mm-hmm. he wasn't a doctor. Yeah. So he would be working by candlelight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he came along at a time where he, some of the stuff he drew is incorrect because that's not what we knew about yeah. the body. And so he was kind of stuck in the middle of, well, this is what people thought the body looked like who didn't mm-hmm. do dissections. And he was looking at stuff and trying to reconcile the difference between you know, what he was seeing in, in real life. But I, I think that um, one of the things that we have a problem with in the United States when it comes to talking about, like, the human donor thing, when I tell people what I do, it's a shock factor just because, oh, you you work with dead people? Yeah. And uh, it's like this long conversation about, well, in the U.S., that's because usually after someone dies, we tuck them away. Yeah. Um, someone else comes and picks them up. It's at the it's at the back door of the hospital. Mm-hmm. They take them through the back door into the funeral home. They prep them out of sight. If there's a viewing, we we try to change the body's appearance to what it looked like when yeah. it was living. That's very different. I mean, there are very different death procedures around the globe. Um, I've some of the stranger ones um, in um, Tibet, for example, they have sky burials. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, where the the family will bring the body to the the monks. The monks will prepare the body um, first by doing um, some prayer. And then the monks take the body just a slight way over the hill and then basically cut it with machetes. And vultures, you know, eat the body. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's for them returning the body into kind of the, the circle of life. Um but it's, it's just a different way of dealing with death. And I've seen some documentaries where um, I can't remember exactly where this is. It's in, in some of um, the small islands off of China. Mm-hmm. But after a person dies, they live with the family for up to two years. Yeah. And they treat the body. It, it kind of mummifies. Mm-hmm. But they bring it out for its birthday. And then when they finally do bury it, they still every year will go back and change the person's clothes. Yeah. And ha- you know basically have a birthday party for the individual. And so I think... The reason why what I do is is so shocking in the U.S. is just because of how we treat death and how when someone dies, it's like a separate process yeah. instead of a part of 
just the natural because there's no uh, single procedure for burial practices they vary culture to culture spoiler alert we have an upcoming episode for that so perfect introduction but i mean for example i was when i was in indonesia there was a whole graveyard in which they did not bury the dead but in fact they kept them in cages above the ground Mm -hmm. and it was just an open air kind of burial there's different ways in which we treat bodies and that has changed through time and that's one of the next points i want to make because you said something about your first um time coming in contact with a human donor it was really hot outside mm-hmm. and, you know in a single air conditioning unit i just heard a story about how medical students i would say probably circa mid 1800s would only do their dissections in the winter there is so think of it as opportunity i mean one of the problems uh, and it's this it, preserving the body with the, with chemicals to make it last for a longer time is a much more recent concept um, in yeah, even in the 1800s, early 1900s, you'll see pictures. Uh, this is another thing: is people will see pictures of like a med school class mm-hmm. posed next to their um, donor, and you know people look at that nowadays and they oh that's so yeah. shocking that's so. But it's just that was what people did back then. But you look at the body and the body is really blackened because mm-hmm. there was no way to prevent that decay. So temperature would be important. Um, the you know I can't imagine what it what it would have been like to do dissection in like a warmer humid climate, yeah. um, and you always see I mean this is like medical students of old who were with like wool yeah you know wool jackets mm-hmm. and you know formal dress all the time. Um, there's this the um, the anatomist is a really good kind of reconstruction of the life of Henry Gray and Henry Van Dyke who were the, the two people who put together Gray's Anatomy, and that's like formal. You know, seventeen mid like late seventeen hundreds in your in uh, England, mm-hmm. doing dissections in full suits and wool coat, and it's, I can't even imagine what that was. Now, have at been some like. point, wasn't that to a degree practicing anatomy? Uh, at one point, wasn't it considered dangerous? Because I was reading about men that were doing their dissections, they would nick their finger, and then oh boy, and then they well, yeah. I mean, so the if there's yeah, and, if there's no preservation, yeah, the the preservation really serves two roles. Um, we one of the roles is that it prevents the body from doing kind of the normal decaying process yeah um so that it's you see what's there for a longer period of time but the i mean the the more practical problem is that the reason the body decays is because bacteria start to break down the body and so immediately um as those bacterial counts pick up i mean it be, it can become very dangerous in terms of yeah you get a small cut and that's a way to to get um sepsis immediately now, as you and I have just been talking about, and it's actually a pretty good example of it, every field, academic field, or whether it be education or anatomy or dentistry, it all has its own history and philosophy. Now, does studying the history of anatomy, does it personally make you a better teacher or a better anatomist, understanding where your field has come from to the present day? I, personally... Perhaps. Perhaps. I don't know that. um, I will say one of the challenges in teaching anatomy is that the history of anatomy is we're going to name things in Latin or Greek. Mm -hmm. And so the more you understand of kind of the history, who got to do the naming, that might make more sense. Um, I think that the history of anatomy is fascinating because um, and, and this is. Um, part of a lot of the talks I do when I talk about the Nazi anatomist is it's important to me to understand um, where bodies came from or, or how do we know what we know. Yeah. Um, because to me, what's almost as important as teaching anatomy is teaching the ethics of what mm-hmm. we do. 
um, and talking to people about, and that's why, you know, we have these complex discussions about human donor versus cadaver. Um, What I think is interesting is understanding the history of how, you know, where we've gotten to, to the point we're at today to um, when I'm having a student with, when I, when I have a conversation with students in, in AMP one or AMP two, it's this conversation about, they come in and they think, well, I'm going to memorize everything and then I'll know everything about anatomy. And it's like, well, we're not really going to discover anything new, mm-hmm. but you know, as the more you study the history of anatomy or the history of any science, there's limitations. Yeah. There's limitations in how we can know something because of our limitations in how we can observe and measure something. Which you spoke on today with dreams, memories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the there's no there's no doubt in my mind that somewhere down the road we might be able to figure out some of those things, but we have to be able to measure it, quantify it, control it over time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm one of the I can I will not at all be able to remember the author of this. But, um, and I can't, uh, John Brockman edited a bunch of series of books a couple of years ago where they're great reads, um, for people who want like five or 10 pages at a time. Mm-hmm. And he would go out to scientists and, and historians and ethicists and philosophers, and he would ask them all one question. And, um, one of the series was what's your dangerous idea. So he would go Ask everyone, what's your da- what's your one dangerous idea that would rock the foundation of um, the field that you're in? And this one scientist basically said, you should consider that everything you know about science right now is wrong. And not wrong in the sense that it's like polar opposite yeah. wrong, but it's wrong in that if you look at the history of science, we've changed our mind about a lot of things because we now know better. Yeah. We have more sensitive instrumentation or we have better technology. Or we have computational technology to do the math that would have taken uh, one person a whole lifetime to even develop, mm-hmm. right? And so, it, you know, it's that kind of constant idea that when we're approaching teaching students, it's not about learning just anatomy. It's about a learning. It's about learning how to learn yeah. and how to constantly refresh yourself and learn new things and be able to analyze information rationally and and so i mean we're constantly bringing um when we do nutrition for example with the um uh, digestive system we're constantly bringing fad diets into the classroom and we're trying to break them down and sit down with students and say okay so here's the fad diet here's the little bit of science they try to talk about it well what do we know about what we've been talking about with the digestive system Mm -hmm. for the last two weeks now apply that to this fad diet does any of that make sense oh well you know, and then, then look at the fad diet before that and before that. Oh, they all kind of have this common theme that's like, and students start to see, oh, well, maybe I can do some of this analysis myself and figure that out. So that's that kind of constant struggle with students is they want to mm-hmm. just come in and say, here's anatomy. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to make my flashcards yeah. versus here's this field that, that if I'm going to be a nurse. I need to constantly refresh myself in and keep learning from. That's exactly one of the points I was going to make was many people, especially at the underground undergrad level, look at anatomy and it's like, okay, I just have to memorize all of these parts. But really, it's so much more than just that. 
and you were talking about how the field is always evolving, really any field is always mm -hmm. evolving with the new information, new knowledge, new instrumentation. Do the ethics of a field evolve along with the evolution of technology? Uh, so I'll speak more specifically about anatomy because I think history of anatomy tells an important story about ethics that I think is regardless of just technology. Okay. Um, so the first um, anatomist, go way back, um, it was a guy called Galen. And it's funny to look at some of his um, art because it's just, it's not right. It's okay. not, it's, you look, as, as an anatomist who's seen inside a human body, you're like, that, that's like a guess. He's the four humors guy, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the problem would have been, if you want to look inside a human, you have to have a human you can look inside. Yeah. And people haven't always viewed dissection as something that is a societal, you know, a societal norm. And so it was very common back then. So how would you get someone to dissect? And so there's a lot of speculation about like body thievery or some of the things we know. So eventually um, the, the, the first person who was like, the the modern anatomist was Vesalius okay. and um, so he's an Italian uh, doctor and he does these very public dissections there's these wonderful pictures of what these dissections might have mm -hmm. looked like you can go to some of these dissection theaters in Italy and you can tell that he's in the body because first you look at the representations and they're correct okay. um, but he spends most of his career basically trying to, you know, this is years after Galen's dead, but disprove the the disciples of Galen, mm -hmm. basically, who are telling him, this isn't right. Look at the pictures that Galen did. And he's like, this is right. Look at this body. And what he would have been working with would have been bodies of executed prisoners, for example. And that's an ongoing trend, correct? I mean, for a long time, because... People wouldn't just say, yeah, you can use my body for dissection mm -hmm. a lot of the times for religious reasons or societal norms um, that uh, the way to get a body would be from an executed prisoner. There's also so the the this is another one where uh, sexism plays a role. So it would be laughable to think that there would be a female available for dissection. One, because we don't usually think of women as mm -hmm. being criminals that we would execute, but two the way that we've always kind of viewed women as we must protect and we must, you know, they're subservient. We just would never have dissected a woman. Okay. Um, so again, you see these like um, drawings of what uh, a, like a uh, embryo or fetus might look like in the womb. And you say to yourself, well, that looks a lot like maybe an animal okay. would have looked like. And it's probably because they were dissecting a, you know, a dead mm -hmm. dog or a dead, whatever animal. Yeah. And trying to, to, to picture that's what a, a human must look like, human female must look like. And so even until more modern times, like the early, uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was still fairly common to use bodies of executed prisoners. Um, there's some interesting stories like um, Burke and Hare in um, kind of Northern England, Scotland area, University of Edinburgh, were this famous duo who, uh, and they call it, they called it for a while, Burking. Um, so they would steal bodies from the graveyard mm -hmm. And sell them to a physician who was the anatomy professor at the University of Edinburgh. And at some point they realized it would be a lot less work instead of digging up a body yeah. to make a body. 
So they were um, waiting outside a pub for drunk people to come out and they would kill them and to essentially deliver the bodies warm when they found out, um, I think um, Hare turned on Burke and got like a life sentence for admitting that he did it. So Burke was the one who took the, the main rap and as his punishment, he was executed. Yeah. They put his body on public display as was common of executed prisoners, they dissected his body in an anatomical institute. And you can go to the University of Edinburgh today and some of his skin was leatherized and they made a wallet out of it. And that's on display as kind of like a remembrance of that time in history. Even in the United States, there are stories of um, grave robbing. Um, There was a, a med school riot in Connecticut where they just thought that they might be doing that. And they like, basically trashed the anatomy department because that was a possibility. There's stories, you can actually go to some old cemeteries and you'll see a grave where there's a metal kind of um, like an iron fence around okay, the yeah. casket. And some people will joke, oh, that's to be, they were worried about vampires. Mm-hmm. They were worried about body snatchers. Yeah. They put this iron fence around the casket to prevent grave robbers from getting into the uh, something about caskets. They would put like a prop of a weapon almost like a tripwire and it would shoot the it, grave that's robber. possible i mean I it, that's how common it was. it was uh, i forget what it was called it was insane but one of the um i think one of the saddest you know there's also with slavery there was uh, selling slaves yeah. after they were not not valuable to the slave owners anymore to medical schools for dissection um one there the university of south carolina i believe it mm. was actually bought a slave taught him how to read so that he could read the obituaries Mm -hmm. and his job was to go out the night a person was buried dig up the body and bring it to the university for dissection uh and you know no one it's like his pictures in he's pictured with all of the graduating classes from medical school Mm -hmm. until someone finally said hey uh what, why is this one guy constantly in this in yeah. the picture? And they figured out that's what was going on. So this is like this unsavory history. So it wasn't until the early nineteen uh, early nineteen hundreds where there start to be some laws changed about how bodies can be acquired, and that's where you see the change to mo- um, donation became a little. It comes in and out of favor, mm-hmm. became a little bit more popular in the nineteen hundreds, and now. Um, it's still not like people don't bend over backwards to donate their body. Yeah. I think there's a profile. One of the things we notice is we see a lot of males who are in their seventies. And so men die younger than women. And so these are males who've been in like long-term care and have decided that to pay back the medical community that helped them, they would donate their body. And then we see their wives donate like 15, 30 years later. So we have a lot of, like 90-year-old females who donate their body. And that's kind of like a standard range. But I think one of the things we notice a lot is that the people who donate aren't, they weren't like people who had these fully healthy lives. They yeah. have this history towards the end of their life of some chronic condition that they were exposed to the medical community a lot and mm-hmm. felt um, kind of like um, like a duty yeah. to donate their bodies. This raises a couple of questions then for me. I've seen, I guess, a general trend in which, we'll say prior to the 1900s, it seems though the idea that you need to further the field kind of overshadowed the, these are humans and we need to treat these bodies ethically. And also, I see a 
potential, I don't want to say problem, but a complication. And what if you were trying to map uh, the female reproductive system? It's not exactly... I, it's not exactly the same if you're trying to get an accurate representation of when you're 23 as opposed yeah. to when you're when 90. You're 90. Um, so I think in general, one of the problems that science has is that science is very good at saying, uh, answering questions like, can we do this? Mm -hmm. And it's not very good at answering questions. This is not what science is for. Is It's not for answering questions, should we do this? Yeah. It's for answering the questions, can we do this? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's important to have ethicists work with scientists to be able to answer questions about when we do, when we start talking about doing something, should we do it? Um, in terms of, of understanding not just the, the benefit, but the harm. So that, I think this is a good segue into talking about the Nazis. Yep, I was just about to go there. I feel like so, we're building towards it. So for example, um, the... This would have been standard even back um, in the Nazi era. If a, if a woman was going to donate her body, she was likely going to be an older woman. Mm -hmm. And so past menopause, the reproductive system in a woman goes through um, a long atrophy with the lack of um, stimulation from estrogen and progestin. And so when we have a 90-year-old female, so the first question we're going to have is, is she going to have a uterus? Because there was a long history of treating women by saying, oh, you have this problem, we'll just take your uterus out because that's probably the issue. So our first question is, are they going to have a uterus? And then the second question is, um, how, what's it going to look like? Because it's probably been atrophying for as long as it was working. And so it, you know, if you wanted to do research on a uterus, a healthy uterus, you need a healthy aged woman. So in Nazi Germany, this is kind of like a, a segue. Um, there are a lot of anatomists in the 30s who are trying to answer questions like this. And one of them um, is a, a researcher named Hermann Steve. And he is he has a long history of doing reproductive research. Mm -hmm. um, he was very interested in the history uh, or in the study of how stress affected um, the female reproductive organs. And this is before we had like sensitive understanding of hormone regulation mm -hmm. and nervous system regulation. And so he used to do these, like in grad school, he did experiments where he would take hens who were laying eggs and he would put a fox near the hen house and see how that affected the egg laying, you know, things like yeah. that. So he's trying to study um, female reproductive system. And he's just constantly in the early 1930s writing these letters to the... Um, the German National Science Foundations complaining that he doesn't have bodies to do the research on. We have to do something about this. So at the time, there were very few people who were donating, and the only other way to get bodies would have been executed prisoners, which, again, is not going to be females. Yeah. So if he's getting females, it's likely going to be women who are older than reproductive age. So one of the things that happens is almost immediately as the, the Nazis kind of rise in power, um, the number of executions start to go up and the number of executions of women of reproductive age start mm -hmm. to go up. And he finds out about this and he starts to work a deal with a local um, prison camp and he starts collecting the bodies of these women who've been executed for crimes of, I'm gonna, no one can see this because it's quotes, podcast, you can't see it. air quotes, treason, which might mean saying something bad about the Reich or telling um, telling like an, an off-color joke. 
um, racial mixing. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, a German woman married to a Jewish man would be a capital offense. And he was taking these young women into the lab. And so now he has this great source of reproductive age um, women to be able to do study on. And um, just prolifically writes papers through the period of the mid 30s and early 40s. And, you know, it's not necessarily they. So this is where it's like uh, I have these conversations in my head all the time. So he actually wasn't a Nazi. He wasn't a member of the party. He was benefiting from what they were doing, Mm -hmm. obviously. There is. So he was working with a local um, prison camp. And one of the things. So because it's a prison camp, we're not talking about concentration camps. So these there's municipal records. There's court hearings Mm -hmm. you know this person was found guilty of a capital crime they're in jail so there's record keeping whenever i talk about the nazi anatomists one of the things i have to say up front is that what people are going to expect is i'm going to talk about these atrocities that happen in concentration camps and there's this source of bodies but these german scientists were eugenicists anyone who wasn't german was inferior so they wouldn't have wanted to do research on those bodies because they were essentially trying to prove that they were lesser. So if he wanted to do research on an individual who was a healthy, quality individual, it would be someone who was a German citizen. Now, when you throw out the term Nazi, most people in America go, oh, you know, because they mm-hmm. typically assume they're the prototypical bad guys or whatever. Right. Now, generally, I've tried to stress that through history, there's no just straight bad guy. They usually thought they were doing something right or they mm-hmm. believed in what they were doing. So how is what these anatomists are doing, how is it any different than through time when they're just taking prisoners? I mean, there have been regimes through time that right. have been dictatorial and totalitarian. How is that any different? Or is it just that they're Nazis? So we have a yeah. weird misconception. One of, when I give my talks or whenever I we do something with these Nazi anatomists, one of the things that I try to point out is that it's very easy to, uh, for lack of a better term, crap on the Nazis. Yeah. Right. Um, it's obvious that a lot of what they did wasn't great. Um, you know, if you look at the, um, and I'm teaching an honors course this semester where we're looking at medical ethics through the lens of these Nazi anatomists, one of the things I give the students is I give them kind of the pre-Hitler um, national socialist position. This is the list of things that they think are important. And so these are things that when you look at them, sometimes they're innocuous. So when it came to medicine, for example, their focus was on practical medicine. Science shouldn't just be for science's sake. Okay. We're not just going to do things for fanciful delight. We don't just want to figure out why something is the way it is. Mm-hmm. We want to do stuff that's going to help the German population. We're going to do things that are targeted at helping helping people. And, you know, so at an entry level, that's like, oh, that's that sounds like a yeah. good thing. And we're, we constantly are having that conversation. So one of the things that they would have been big believers in is eugenics. And so... I always try to point out with eugenics that pseudoscience probably isn't a great term for that. Mm -hmm. It's really just bad science and and not necessarily even science to begin with. But the idea behind eugenics, it's the same thing. There's these traits within a population that just they're harmful. They're devastating. Why don't we just do something to get rid of those traits and people will just live better lives. Now, what that meant was and and. in Germany, what they were doing 
is they were enacting laws, for example, that were anti-immigrant laws. So they would keep immigrants out of the area. They would have um, anti-miscegenation laws. So mm -hmm. um, someone who was a German person, a Nordic person, however they were defining themselves. Um, I, I always try to use the term Aryan because Aryan was a term that they would use that kind of meant that you're either German slash Nordic slash agreed at least in principle with what they yeah. were doing eventually. But if you were fit into that category and you married someone who was Jewish, mm -hmm. non-Aryan, then they would prevent that. That was that would be against the law. The there were these Nuremberg laws that that had they were partially anti-miscegenation, but they were also very um, they were very demanding on reproductive structures in a female. So um, if you were to look at like abortion, for example, mm -hmm. uh, if a German woman was carrying an if an Aryan woman was carrying an Aryan baby, abortion would be strictly prohibited. Yeah. In fact, that could be a capital offense. But if a, an, uh, an Aryan woman was carrying a non-Aryan baby, abortion would almost likely be mandatory. Mm. Um, and that would be part of those Nuremberg laws. And then the the next place... So these are all things that if you look at the history of the United States, I mean, those are things that we did here too. Yeah, um, We had anti-miscegenation laws in Virginia until the Supreme Court struck them down in 1967. Mm -hmm. um, we've had anti-immigration laws until... Still, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the next step that they took at the eugenicists in the United States didn't do is they had these euthanasia programs mm -hmm. where they basically would pick someone out who they decided was not fit to be part of the population and would euthanize them keep, as a way to keep those genes out of the population. And so that's where you start to see that's like the movement beyond mm -hmm. um, and that ended up actually being a source of bodies for these Nazi anatomists. So I don't think it's that when you look at some of the things, it's not necessarily that they started out as these horrible things. It's a, the um, I can't think of his name, but there's this like the law of arguments on the Internet that it only takes like three returns before you call someone a Nazi, like Poe's Law or something like that. Um we, so we throw that term around a lot, but it's like you look at the rest of the platform, it's like being a vegan, that would be what they would they would totally be on board with stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, there's a lot of, you know, it's it's confusing when you look at the parts of their platform, because compared to how we think about politics in the U.S., some of them are very conservative, but some of them are very liberal. Yeah. And it's like this mixing of stuff. And it, it's just as soon as you start doing getting into the eugenics part, it's this next step. It's like the when you start to dis, to have this conversation about trying to prevent certain traits from going on, it's like, well, what traits and who decides and what do we do with someone yeah. when they have that trait? Um, and we're like forced sterilizations. Yeah, forced and sterilizations and things like that. Uh, it's like that next step that they would take in order to kind of drive what they were doing. Now, you were talking about some of these Nazis anatomists were very prolific, putting out papers, articles. We just talked about Galen a while ago, and some of what he has talked about has survived through all of this time. So I'm assuming what people were doing in the 40s is still around. Is it common? Could you go to a library and say, oh, this was actually written by an anatomist who... So it's actually the reason I'm at Slippery Rock University yeah. today is that... Um, one of these Nazi anatomists, so he wasn't actually um, German, he was Austrian, okay. um, Edward Pernkoff, created a bunch of atlases, anatomical atlases. And so I have done some extensive, extensive research on those. And 
was trying to figure out a way to be able to do the research without traveling every single weekend to go to a library to yeah. see them. So my librarian came up with the idea of, well, let's just ask libraries. And so Slippery Rock sent us um, a copy of the Atlas through, inter for, through interlibrary loan. Now, real quick, for people who don't know, what is an mm -hmm. anatomical atlas? So anatomical atlases would be, so this is more than like a textbook. Okay. This is not just like the... This is your general overview of anatomy. So the Pernkoff Atlas is a very detailed, it's topographical. Okay. So it's kind of like as you turn the page, your one page is like the surface mm -hmm. anatomy. Then you turn the page and it might be slightly dissected. You turn the page, it's slightly more dissected. Now in terms of utility, just speaking objectively, is mm -hmm. it a good book, so to speak? Is it useful or is it flawed in any kind of way? Or The reason I think the Pernkoff Atlas has persisted is because um, the... And so it, it's paintings okay. that um, are these um, full color, elaborate um, representations of the human Which body. Is different, right? Typically a sketch or... Well, so before Pernkoff, it would have been what are called woodcuts. Okay. So one artist would have done a sketch in pencil or mm -hmm. pen. Uh, another artist would have transferred that onto the wood block and done like that reverse cut, yeah. um, like a stamp that you have and then someone you have to put the ink over the top of it and plate it onto the page um so this is pernkoff's atlas was the first time they were doing four color process printing okay. so first time you get to see these big full color images and the um they i think people say well why don't you just use pictures the pro there's a couple problems with pictures Pictures don't do as good as an artist can of yeah. recreating three dimensions in two dimensions. Um, so pictures really take that lack of depth out. The other problem with pictures is that if you don't have a perfect dissection, which is almost impossible to have a 100% perfect dissection, okay. you can't fix a picture. Yeah. So one of the things that these watercolor artists were doing is they knew what the anatomy was. So if the dissection wasn't perfect with a swipe of the brush they can make it perfect yeah. um so there are all sorts of stories in fact um when i was doing some of the research i heard a story of a head and neck surgeon who would be in the middle of a surgery would stop a surgery scrub out get the atlas use the atlas as a reference because it was so good scrub back in and finish the surgery um and so I, that's part of the reason these atlases have persisted so there's a lot of them in, in um, libraries. And so when I was doing the work, I actually sent a letter back to um, the Slippery Rock Library and at, you know told them kind of the history of the Atlas, yeah. where it came from. And um, that's kind of, that led to my invite today. And it, that's kind of like, my current mission is to kind of track down copies of the Atlas and let people know what they have so that um, people can educate ethically rather than just have people I always worry if it's in general circulation. Yeah. Someone, a student could just check it out and then try to sell it on eBay for some price, for example. Now, is it is it ethical to have these atlases? Or, I mean, is there... You, how are the bodies typically sourced for these atlases by Pernkopf? Are they... So, this is a question that comes up a lot when I do the presentations. When I started doing these presentations, I would do them for the Anatomical Society that I'm a part of, the mm -hmm. uh, HAPS, which is the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society. And someone would someone rightly pointed out the first time, well, uh, it would it, it was traditional back in the times of Galen and Vesalius and, and all throughout history to use bodies of executed prisoners. Yeah. And Pernkoff was using bodies of executed prisoners. So what makes Pernkoff any different? The regime. 
And well, so I think that's part of it. And one of the things I try to separate is that it's not just that they were Nazis. Okay. It's not, you know, because that's you could you could go into any pop, you know, any culture you didn't like and just say, oh, I didn't like that culture, so they were executing people, this is bad. Yeah, I mean if you were sourcing bodies from the Ottoman Empire, there were plenty right. of unethical And you know, in the Atlas, for example, there are swastikas in the signatures. Okay. Some of the artists use the Germanic runes for S's in their um signatures. It's so it's not that they were Nazis, it's not that they were using the Nazi iconography. So they were using these executed prisoners, but it's like, this is the next step. They were using the bodies of prisoners who were executed for capital treasonous offenses at that time, which in some cases would have meant these were just people who disagreed with the Nazi party. So you're saying then through time, perhaps Galen or whatever, they were executed... They were using prisoners who were were executed, and that could have been for murder, rape, what have you. But here it's just so traditionally, yeah. It's like yeah, you have to judge. You have to do a little bit of judging the times by the times. Okay, it would have been the anatomists only would have had these executed prisoners to work from. So might that be one hundred percent ethical? No, but I mean, at the time, if we Mm -hmm. wanted to further medicine, what was the choice? So on one hand, what choice did the Nazis have other than using that? Except they all also probably knew that the body, I mean, the, the number of bodies increased so much during Pernkoff's time at the University of Vienna. He was applying for budget increases. But um, there are stories of, and you brought this up earlier, in the winter, in Vienna, they were stacking bodies up like piles of wood behind the medical institute because mm-hmm. there were so many bodies and they just didn't have any place to put them. So they had to know that with that uptick, these weren't executions because of capital crimes. Yeah. These were, you know, and then I think there's always that debate. Well, did they know or didn't they? And Pernkoff was a Nazi. He, the day that he becomes the dean of the medical school, he um, gives a speech where he welcomes the son of Austria back to the head of the Reich in his rightful place and Austria's rightful place as part of the Reich. And, the day after that, he sends out um, a documentation request to all of the professors. They all have to demonstrate their Arianism. And so they have to submit their birth certificates and their spouse's birth certificates and their marriage licenses. And he expelled like 70 plus percent of the med school faculty for not being Arian. And again, so those things in themselves, I mean, that's like that's part of. Um, the time yeah and i think it's a it's a difficult conversation because you know for example a soldier in the german army didn't wasn't necessarily a member of the nazi party just because they were fighting against allied forces doesn't necessarily make them a nazi like top level criminal but it's like that it's the next step it's like pernkoff he was a nazi and he believed in euthanasia Mm -hmm. and he believed that these people deserved to be executed for their treasonous crimes against the Reich. And so by using their bodies to create his atlas, I think that creates a condition that's very different than um, uh, the kind of normal, we're just executing, not that, oh, we're just executing um, capital offense, like a murderer is a great thing. But um, this kind you know, that controversy goes on because for example, in the U S in the late eighties, we started the visible human project, which was a digital atlas Mm -hmm. 
where um, they uh, an inmate in the Texas prison system who was being executed donated his body to be sectioned to create this digital atlas. Mm-hmm. And people were kind of up in arms. I mean, isn't that the same thing? Well, at the very least, even though he was executed, he was a capital offender, he willed his body mm-hmm. to do that. So I, it, you create these different ethical scenarios. So I think your original question was, so what do we do with the atlases? Um, I own a series of the atlases. Mm-hmm. And I was giving a version of the, this before I owned a version of the atlases. Um, we have, so one of the problems with the atlases is some of the images have made their way into other books. Okay. And as I started doing this work a couple years ago, found out that some of those books were in our lab. And so I started trying to tracing down the roots of those images, was giving a talk a few years ago in, uh, at the university of Utah. And one of the students just raised their hands in the middle of my Pernkoff bit and was like, so what do you do with those atlases in the lab? And, you know, it's like seven years of going back and forth. What do I do? I mean, I could have just snuck them out in the middle of the night. Yeah. And no one would know any different. So it's like, what did we do? And, and at the same time, um, had discovered um, a group in Boston had created what's called the Vienna Protocol. Um, in Germany and Austria and a lot of places that the Germans occupied, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to excavate for construction because a lot of the times they excavate, they find these mass graves. And so the Vienna Protocol is a um, like recommendation for what do you do for the, when you find these discovered remains? And there's a specific part in there about Pernkoff and it kind of hems and haws. It's the same thing I felt like for seven years, Mm -hmm. these people probably wouldn't have consented. Um, For example, Jewish people would not have consented to have their body used for dissection after death. They wouldn't. There's a prohibition of photographing um, mm-hmm. the dead, and this might fall under that. But at the same time, uh, and I can't remember the Jewish word for this, there is a forgiveness and there is a benefit of using um, remains or using tissues for furthering medicine to help mm-hmm. other people. And and so even the recommendation isn't like a solid recommendation, but basically was if you're going to use the books you can't just use them. You have to tell people what they are and, and give kind of context. So there's this kind of, Oh, doing the weight hands here. You can't mm-hmm. see on the podcast, but it's like an age old conversation I think is still happening today. Can you separate the context from the work, which yeah. I would argue you typically can't, you'd have yeah. to recognize it, but if it's objectively useful and there's a utility to it, is it wrong to use it if you recognize yeah. where it came from? Exactly. So I, the decision we made about the books that don't have Pernkoff's name on them, but have some of those images mm-hmm. was we identify and we have a plaque on the outside of our lab that identifies that we have some of that material in the lab and that part of what we're doing is not just teaching anatomy, but we're teaching ethics and we're teaching humanity. This is back yeah. to where we started. Right. And so part of the humanity is recognizing that in some of the bad things that have happened historically, we can learn how to do better. Um, When it came to me, um, there was an opportunity for me to start um, creating a collection of some of the books. Mm -hmm. Uh, It certainly makes it easier for my research to be able to have copies and not. I mean, there was a time when I live in Syracuse, New York. We were traveling 
um, one weekend to Yale, one weekend to Harvard, one weekend to Johns Hopkins, just to be able to see different versions of the book. I decided, though, I had to make an important decision. If I'm going to own these books, Mm -hmm. I have to have a reason to own these books. So I will never teach anatomy from those books. My it's like I have two conditions that I will always keep in mind um, as I have these books. And one uh, is that if I'm going to own these books, then I have to use them for education related to medical and scientific and anatomical ethics. Um, so that's part of, and um, we I've loaned them out for display at libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we use them for education in classrooms and stuff like that. But two, the other thing I feel like I, is important is if I can get one of those atlases, um, what I can do is I can try to find a library that will house it with ethical training okay. and try to keep it out of the hands of some collector who just wants oh, I just want this book because it has a swastika in it. Yeah. And that's like a constant struggle I have is even as I talk about the books, so whenever I collect other um, historical medical books as mm-hmm. well, and whenever it comes to an old book, it's like the value of the book is what anyone's willing to pay for it. Yeah. So my concern is that by talking about these books, I can give them more value than they actually have. Mm-hmm. But it's like as long as we can constantly have these discussions about ethics related to those books, that's as important to me as... Um, kind of keeping them out of hands who just want them for, oh, I just want to show people this swastika. Now there's a larger ethical consideration away from just the idea that there's a swastika in this book or whatnot that relates more broadly to the field of anatomy or medical history or whatnot. When you go to some of these, I've been to quite a few museums that display uh, various findings, various bodies and whatnot. Is it is there a fine line between where you're using this for, okay, this is science and this is like a fetishization? Is okay. there? That is a wonderful question. This is my, this is like uh, Pernkoff was my, what I spent uh, 365 days last year thinking about. The 365 days this year that I'm thinking about are, th- that is like that exact question. Mm-hmm. So, and I, sometimes I fear that like, as I say what I'm about to say, I come off like a fuddy-duddy a little bit. But um, so if you go into my office, so I, this is where I feel like I have to set the scene a little okay. bit. So you come into my office and there's anatomy everywhere. Mm-hmm. Halloween is my favorite holiday because I can yeah. go out and I can buy skulls. And I have a on my card box, I have a, a skeleton hand that's a sitting on top of it. Yeah. I mean, it's all fake. But I also have dissections on my wall of a human cranium um, with the brain intact inside uh, I have on my desk, I have a cross section of an upper arm from a human okay. that's in amber. Uh, Sounds like my room, except mine are all animals. All, but, okay. all animals, yeah. Well, so it's the same thing. Yeah. Last year, we went to an oddity shop in um, Baltimore, and I found a slide box of brain slices mm-hmm. from the University of San Francisco that were for sale. So I keep those. And that's, I feel like it's the same thing. I, I'm in this oddity shop. They're selling this for the shock factor. I want to like bring it back to a place where we can use this for education because if this person donated for education, yeah. and this this is where I start to feel like a fuddy-duddy. I go into these oddity stores and there's a human skeleton there and I'm always like, so first off, did this person donate their body? Yeah. But second off, if they donated their body, do you think they really would have consented to have it be for sale so someone mm-hmm. could put it up in their home as kind of like a, oh, this is shocking, right? And so I struggle with this, but to your point, to your question, 
there's like the bodies, the exhibition or body worlds where they do these elaborate plastinations of a human body. Um, and then they pose them in these positions that are, you know, sometimes very naturalistic. So uh, a person kicking a soccer ball yeah. or they'll have a plastinated human on a plastinated horse. Or one of the one one of the recent ones I've seen is a plastinated man having sex with a plastinated woman. So, but they're dissected so that you can see what the internal anatomy would look like during during yeah. sex, right? Um, so there's some ethical questions: where are they getting their bodies from? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of those individuals look Asian, and so there's a question of were they donors or were they executed yeah. um, Asian prisoners, things like that. But my next bigger question is, what's the purpose of those exhibits? Exactly. So if I go to one of those exhibits, I, I'm an anatomist, and I'm learning, and there's stuff. And if a student who's an anatomy student goes, they might be learning something. But if, you know, uh, Jack and Jill Schmo off the street go to one of those exhibits, what, are they, what do they get out of that? Is it, do they see an aesthetic in that? Does that aesthetic, does that trivialization of the human body as art mm -hmm. change how we look at the body does it make it you know does it make it easier to kind of trivialize what the humanity is i've seen some arguments that it's art now yeah well and then, so uh that's one of the questions i have is, is if we treat anatomy like art which i think is very easy does that trivialize the the I don't like the word sacred because to me it's not like it's not like a divine or a yeah. religious thing. I think humanity is all by itself an important thing that we're human. And even if you know, so if you have a collection of like these preserved animal specimens, right? It's the same thing. At, that you know, if you just call the human sacred, then it's okay to do bad things to animals. Or is you know, is it that same type of representation? And this is where I feel like sometimes I'm going too far. And my office mate, when we have this discussion, mm -hmm. which I probably prod like once a month, um, she'll remind me, you know, so some kid might go to this, though, and see that. And that's their spark. That's my when I was in college and had to take an intro to anatomy yeah. course because I thought I wanted to be an athletic trainer. That might be their spark. Like, oh, this is super interesting. So it's like walking this fine line and, you know, trying to figure out. What's the use? What's the benefit? How is this possible? Yeah. Is there, in addition to, and this is why I think um, we like to have at our lab, because we have human donors, uh, this long-term discussion mm -hmm. of this is, this is slash was a real living, breathing person. We, you know, we, this was, this is Catherine mm -hmm. and we're going to call this person Catherine because that was her name yeah. and she's here to teach us. We're here to learn from her. And it, I think it makes it harder for our students to just see them as an yeah. object, see them as a thing. And so I think it's, that's why it's kind of constantly I'm having it. I know it sounds like a fuddy-duddy sometimes, like, ah, oh. but it's a constantly thinking about what's the importance of why we're doing this and having this experience. And if it's just art, um, sometimes I have a problem with that. Like with Pernkoff atlases, for mm -hmm. example, one of the reasons people give for like, for keeping those atlases around is that they're just these great works of art. And it's like, thumbs down yeah you know that's that's like the worst reason that we justify that somehow it's okay that what happened happened because this is really good art 
Um, and, and so I see that there's the potential for that to be an so issue. This kind of relates to everything we've been talking about this, to this point, the evolution of the ethics and morality of mm-hmm. anatomy. And we were talking about some artists at the very beginning here. Is there, is there this clear, definite line in which you were like, okay, we have reached some sort of consensus on what is morally okay in the field of anatomy and what isn't when they stopped when you were like okay i can look at atlases from this point on and realize oh we are not uh sourcing grave robbed people or things along those lines or is there always you have to look at the context before you dive into an atlas or if you go to one of those museums or you buy one of your um slides of a human brain or whatnot yeah i that's i don't know if we have time that's like Probably eight chapters in four books. Yeah. Um, I think the short answer to that is that there's never a simple answer to to any of those questions. Yeah. That what I always strive for is the highest quality of at least discussion Mm -hmm. of the ethics. Okay. At least some thought. Is it possible to go back in time and assume that everything that we could possibly ever use is 100% ethical? Probably not. Yeah. You know, is there value in what came even if it wasn't ethical? Yeah. And that's why to me, it's important that we don't just have a discussion about the anatomy. We have a discussion about the ethics. And so they're inseparable, you would say. They're in at least your perspective. I think they're separate discussions. Okay. But you, you can't be doing one without also thinking of the other at the same time. Okay. And I think that my perspective is pushed that way because we have human donors in mm-hmm. the lab. And, and that is, like, that makes it tantamount. I think it, before I was at Mohawk Valley Community College, I, we taught with cats. Yeah. And so it was a different ethical discussion. Mm-hmm. The justification was different. I wasn't justifying the use of a human body and the history of human uh human donation ethics, I was justifying the use of an animal. Yeah. And that's a very different discussion because now you're fighting the conceptions that people have about the use and care of animals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's always some sort of, with anatomy, I think representations in models and pictures aren't as good because they're too perfect. Yeah. The the benefit we have of having two males and two females a year is that the most important lesson students learn about the human body is that even though it's all in there, it's slightly different. And yeah. so you can't just learn, you can't just memorize. You have to get in and you have to be hands-on and you have to move around. And that's an important lesson in anatomy that you don't get from just a book or just from models. You have to have a specimen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually one of my ethical concerns about like online instruction for yeah. anatomy is that so you're just learning from a screen or if you're just learning from a book, you don't get even the three-dimensional perspective of a model. Yeah. But then if you're learning just from a model, you're getting this perfect three-dimensional representation. So it's like constantly having to take steps. And I fear that someday you read the, the story. Um, I talked about The Anatomist, that book earlier. And you read about Henry Gray and Henry Van Dyke. The way they became physicians was years of dissecting. Yeah human donors to be able to learn what the human body was like that we would have a generation of doctors who saw pictures of human bodies Mm -hmm. and didn't have an actual physical experience of dissection to be able to learn 
that that kind of makes me nervous. So yeah. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Thanks for having me. I'm no. glad that we were able to work this out. This I is hope fun this. Um, hope this is. You're talking about the sparks that interest someone into oh. doing it. I hope hopefully some listeners. Are I know like, this wow, is probably this is... very different than what uh, your listeners might normally hear, but it's really not so much a history thing as it is uh, anthropological. We're going all over the world looking at different fields. So I really appreciate you coming on. Yep. Do you have uh, anything you had a uh, you working on a book or anything like that? Someday. Someday. I'm hoping. Um, so I, my website is um, mvccanatomy.org, okay. and I have a section on there where I'm trying to create some resources for instruction around Pernkoff, but that's if people want to get in touch with me, ask more questions, yell at me, tell me that they think my uh, extreme thought that art and anatomy is uh, over the edge, you know, yeah. I, you know, I'm always willing to listen because I think they're important discussions. I'll throw that in the description then. So um, there we have it. Aaron Fried or Freed, depending on who and where. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll talk to you guys next week.